You know, I was listening to Cato Audio a few years ago, and John Fund said something. He was at a Cato event, and he said something to the effect that an idea will never let you down, but a politician almost always will. <laughs> and um, we got let down yesterday afternoon when Mike Lee told us he had to be called out of town and wasn't going to be able to speak today. And uh, it's too bad, because he's actually one of the guys that I like. Um, <laughs> But this being Cato, we were able to reach out uh, internally and find an even better speaker. We yanked Alex Narasta off the next panel and replaced him with Neil McCluskey, who will be talking about educational freedom and reform as part of the next panel. But uh, Alex has become, um, I don't, to me, he's kind of a prototypical of what a Cato scholar should be. Um, he's uh, very energetic. He's well connected on the Hill, as, as you'll hear. Um, he's a great researcher, very capable writer, um, really good presenter. I think you're going to enjoy what he has to say. And also, uh, he and I sat down uh, shortly after I arrived at the Institute to talk strategically about what our immigration effort should look like. And I found out at that point he's also an excellent strategic thinker, and to have all of those uh, attributes in one member of our policy staff is, is really outstanding. And uh, he has some things to talk about that they were able to achieve uh, even this week. Uh, and I think that you're going to find that there is a very uh, cohesive and consistent strategy we have on immigration policy that is, uh, you know, really, really, uh, I was going to say bearing fruit will bear fruit. Um, Alex, uh, you know, his policy area is one where well, you'll hear his presentation. There's just so much disinformation. And I think we would make better decisions as a country if we were able to uh, replace uh, confirmation bias with facts. And Alex does a very capable job doing that. So without further delay, please join me in welcoming to the podium Alex Narasta. Well, thank you, Peter, for that uh, kind introduction. Very nice. And uh, thank you to all of you for being here today and for your generous support of uh, the Cato Institute. When I became a libertarian in the 90s, uh, when I was a kid, uh, I remember when I found out about Cato, I was with my dad on a business trip in Canada. And I was in a bookstore, because I didn't appreciate my dad's business at the time. I thought it was boring. So I went to a bookstore, and I found a book by uh, David Bowes, uh, edited by David Bowes, a libertarian primer, or I sorry, a libertarian reader, which is full of a collection of essays. And instead of, you know, enjoying the town, where we're at, it was a different city, I stayed in my hotel room for most of the trip, uh, reading that book from cover to cover. So it really is a pleasure to be here today uh, presenting with you all. So immigration... Probably a topic that has the greatest uh, heat-to-light ratio of any topic being discussed right now. Um, just to give you a quick refresher of what the current legal immigration policy looks like in the United States, a very simplified view of it. <laughs> now, this is only one small portion of the immigration system. This is the process for getting a green card, which is legal permanent residency. If you're here on a green card and after five years and you follow the law and follow the rules, you can apply for citizenship if you want to. Essentially, the only ways of doing it are four ways. Um, first way is to be closely related to an American. That accounts for about 70% of them every year. 
Uh, the second way is to be very highly skilled and sponsored by an American company. That costs between about $10,000 and $35,000 per green card in government and legal fees. Uh, there's only 140,000 of those issued a year, and only 7% go, can go to people from any one country. So you're from India, the Philippines, or Mexico, uh, or China, uh, the wait time can be decades, or in the case of India, over a century. Um, if, yes, absurd. I, <laughs> uh, they must be planning for immortality. Um, if you're from a country like Iceland or the Democratic Republic of the Congo, it's very easy. So it's an absurd system. Uh, the other way is through an uh, asylum system or refugees. It's about between, depending on the year, between about 80 and 120,000 of those. And then there's a diversity visa, which is 50,000 allocated through a lottery. Now, if you notice, there's no category here for a low-skilled worker unless you're closely related to an American. So there is no green card category for those types of folks. So if you apply this system backwards in time, virtually none of us would be here today, because there would have been no way for our ancestors to get here legally. Now, because part of Cato's mission is to convince uh, Americans and policymakers and others to support a more libertarian immigration system, I think that's one of the reasons why we're here in Washington, D.C. We have to, we had to construct a strategy based on how to do that. And our, basically, our policy positions, our big, broad goals are expand legal immigration opportunities, legalize at least some of the current illegal immigrants, and avoid a lot of the really harsh punishments that people want to do. Now, the research that we do to try to um, change minds on this has been informed, and I recently did it. We did a shift in tactics about a year and a half ago, uh, informed by public polling on this issue. And the polling is pretty clear that issues of um, economics, which I used to write about virtually entirely, um, don't really move people's opinions on this, uh, either historically in this country and other countries. But issues of crime, of terrorism, of cultural issues like assimilation and related to that politics do move a lot of people's minds. Um, on Capitol Hill in this town, economics do continue to shift people's minds. We do talk about that and write about that still, uh, but it has taken a sort of lower priority. Um, and then as a result of that, we've changed our research agenda and we're focusing on producing uh, new ideas. Uh, these are ideas that are consistent with libertarian principles um, but move us in the right direction toward a better policy. These uh, three ideas I'm going to be talking about briefly are state-based visas, allowing states to select migrants through a visa process that they um, run virtually on their own uh, with some federal input, uh, tiered legalization, and uh, welfare reform. So I'm going to begin with some of the research that we've done um, in the last year. In September of 2016, I published a policy analysis I wrote um, called uh, Terrorism and Immigration, a Risk Analysis. Uh, this was influenced by work by John Mueller, who also is, a, I believe, a Cato Senior Fellow, but an Ohio State University professor. And what I tried to do was to calculate the annual chance of being murdered in a terrorist attack committed by a foreigner on U.S. soil by uh, the visa category that they entered in. So I took a look at all the foreign-born terrorists uh, in the United States from 1975 to the end of 2015, 41-year period. Uh, I got their individual names, their biographies, found out what visas they entered in on, uh, and then how many people they killed in a terrorist attack. 
on U.S. soil, um, and how many of them total um, uh, entered and were arrested and apprehended uh, before they committed a terrorist attack. So the number of total people killed on terrorist attack committed on U.S. soil during that time period by foreigners is uh, 3,024. 98.6% uh, of all of those were on 9-11. So 9-11 does dominate um, foreign-born terrorism on U.S. soil. 9-11, uh, um, depending on how you count it, it's between about four and nine times as deadly as the next deadliest terrorist attack in world history. So it is truly uh, an outlier, but we have to include it um, because it dominates. And then I was able to get the, the uh, visas that these folks initially entered on into the United States to try to see which visas are the most exploited, which ones are the most used, and to try to talk about this in the public sphere. So your annual chance of being murdered and a terrorist attack on U.S. soil committed by all foreigners is uh, 1 in 3.6 million a year during that time period. Um, that's compared to about 1 in 14,218 chance per year of being murdered in just a normal homicide. So it's much uh, greater chance of being murdered in a normal homicide. And then we go down the list. Uh, tourists, it's 1 in 3.85 million per year. Uh, that's because 18 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 came in on tourist visas. Uh, deadliest after that is the student visa. One in 68.9 million per year annual chance of being murdered. Um, the reason why that's so high is because one of the hijackers on 9-11 uh, entered on a, tourist, uh, on a student visa. And then it drops to the fiancé visa. Uh, there are 14 people murdered by terrorists on a fiancé visa in uh, late 2015 at the San Bernardino shooting. Um, but that is the only one who has entered, and uh, that's the only terrorist attack committed by somebody who entered on a K-1 visa. Your annual chance of being murdered during that time period is 1 in 780 million a year. Lawful permanent resident, 1 in 3.4 billion per year. Asylum seeker, 1 in 2.7 billion. Refugee. People are very worried about refugees. We hear about it with Syrians and other groups. Um, I had to go all the way back to the late 1970s to find some people who had been murdered by refugees in a terrorist attack. All of them were committed by Cubans. Um, all the terrorists were Cubans. They were all uh, committed in the late 1970s, and they were uh, mostly uh, opponents of the Castro regime who were targeting uh, pro-Castro people in the United States. Uh, your annual chance of being murdered during that time period, by a refugee is one in 3.64 billion a year. One illegal immigrant who entered illegally, one in 10.9 billion a year, and zero on the visa waiver program. So in the first six months that this study was out, it was, uh, it was viewed uh, 211,000 times uniquely on Cato's website, and the statistics were cited, um, I don't even know how many tens of thousands of times. Uh, in the media. So it really blew up uh, in terms of that. Um, in January, on the weekend of the 28th, 29th, and 30th, after President Trump announced the first iteration of his uh, travel ban, it was uh, viewed uh, 157,000 times. So I believe that's the top for a Cato study. Um, and this year, it's number one on Cato as well. Um, so this is really getting at, I think, the heart of a lot of public fear about uh, terrorism and about immigration in the United States and addressing it uh, with facts. By the way, the biggest criticism I've got about this from people is that I include too many terrorists. 
I include people who they think aren't really terrorists, but I figure it's more important to overcount um, than undercount. If I want to make an error, I want to make it in that direction. Second one is the illegal immigrant crime rate in the United States. There's a vast amount of empirical research on the total crime rate, but due to the way that the government counts a lot of these things, a lot of criminologists have not attempted to estimate the illegal immigrant crime rate. Uh, crime rate. I worked with a former intern of mine who was getting a PhD at UC Riverside. We used a residual statistical technique to look in the census to identify the incarceration rates of three groups for the ages of between 18 and 54. Native-born citizens in that age group have an incarceration rate in 2000, uh, 2014 of 1.53%. Illegal immigrants, including those incarcerated only for immigration offenses or in temporary immigrant detention along the border who have, were caught coming over, they have an incarceration rate of 0.85%, and legal immigrants at 0.47. Now, the funny thing is, for the illegal immigrant uh, crime rate, if you exclude those who are in immigrant detention and in jail for only immigrant offenses, immigration crimes, you know, crimes that you and I can't commit, the incarceration rate drops down to 0 0.5, uh, virtually indistinguishable from that of legal immigrants and about one-third that of native-born citizens. This study is the third most widely cited study this year on Cato's website, uh, downloaded, and it has been, uh, I get trickles of information virtually every day that it's being talked about in studies. So this is sort of on the frontier of the research. The next bit of research that we do is about immigrant welfare use in the United States. Uh, basic fact about some of the rules, um, if you are a new immigrant to the US, you are excluded from virtually every single welfare program for five years. If you are here illegally, you're excluded from every single means-tested welfare program with the exception of emergency medical care if you show up at a hospital. Um, uh, with the result that, and this is for use of Medicaid, I have um, use rates on the left. This is for just poor people in the United States. Um, the uh, SNAP use rate for native-born Americans who are poor is 33%. For non-citizens, it's 29%. And when they do use these programs, uh, natives take up higher benefit rates than non-citizens do. So this is some of the other frontier research that we do on this. And we have a new paper coming out about this uh, early next year. We have to wait for the census to catch up. Um, but that's where we are right now. In terms of uh, culture, uh, one of the questions that a lot of people are interested in is, you know, how well do immigrants assimilate today? How well do their kids assimilate? Uh, how, long, how well do the uh, ethnic groups that are currently here assimilating? And a measure that people very much care about is patriotism. How much do these groups like America? Do they like it as much as other groups? So the General Social Survey provides a way to measure this. Um, we published this in a blog, and we're going to do a longer study on this coming up. Um, but the general question is, is America better than other countries? And uh, five answers are strongly agree, agree, neither disagree, and strongly disagree. And on all of these, between immigrants, natives, Hispanics, and non-Hispanics, the differences in all these categories are statistically insignificant. So in terms of self-professed, is America better than other countries, the differences between immigrants, natives, Hispanics, and non-Hispanics are all within the margin of error. So you don't have to worry too much about these four groups. And this is based on 2004 to 2014 pooled samples. So you don't have to worry too much about that. What about political assimilation? 
How close are the ideological, political, and policy opinions of natives to those of immigrants? Statistically insignificant opinions, differences on every single policy issue with basically three exceptions. Political party, immigrants are much more likely to be independent than any other party. More likely to vote democratic, but in terms of their self-identification of party, more likely to be independent. Marijuana legalization, they're less in favor of it to a statistically significant degree, unfortunately. And on immigration, they're much more in favor of it. By the second generation, those born here, all of these differences vanish, with the exception of immigration, where they're continually more in favor of it. And this is just a map. This is first-generation citizens in the, uh, the orange. Those are the ones who can vote. Second gen and then the natives, all natives are in the blue. Statistically insignificant differences across the map. Now, Cato's new reform ideas. The number one idea that we have that is getting the most attention is the idea of a state-based guest worker visa program. The idea is to allow states to basically run and manage their own migration programs in cooperation from the federal government. Uh, Cato published the first policy analysis on this in 2014 uh, in the United States, uh, arguing this program is an improvement. Uh, this Wednesday, Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, Republican, introduced a bill based entirely on our work. Um, after working closely with my colleague, David Beer, who has done phenomenal work up there, introduced a bill uh, to do this. Uh, at a Cato event this Wednesday, he uh, said he couldn't have done it and that it was based on a Cato idea and his work, close work with us. And we got news this morning that uh, Senator John McCain has decided to co-sponsor the bill. One of the things that I think marks our success is when the rest of the world adopts or at least believes in our ideas without calling them libertarian. I would love them to. Uh, that's, a, you know, that's a cherry on top of the Sunday. Um, but our smallest goal for this bill or this idea was that it would be entering the mainstream as a result of this and it would be part of any future discussion about immigration. Uh, that is the absolute uh, least that we wanted from this. And I think the endorsement from Senator John McCain this morning um, does that and makes us in the center of this debate. Uh, uh, Congressman Ron Buck, I'm sorry, Congressman Ken Buck from Colorado is going to be introducing the House Companion Bill shortly about that. Second piece that we are writing about is tiered legalization. This would basically make it for some kind of legalization for current illegal immigrants. It would create different tiers. It would make a path to citizenship very expensive and difficult. It would have a secondary path, which would be a cheap work permit. Um, very easy to get, very cheap to get, and we would let the migrant choose for themselves. Instead of having a one-size-fits-all bill, this would allow them to choose, and virtually all of them would choose the cheap work permit. They wouldn't choose the path to citizenship. This is a way to get a lot of Republicans on board and to improve the system dramatically. Uh, the champion of this uh, lost re-election, unfortunately, last time Senator Mark Kirk from Illinois. Uh, so we're currently looking for somebody else to do that. And then the last bit is uh, build a wall around the welfare state, not around the country. Uh, influenced by a line, uh, a quote from the late uh, Bill Niskanen. Uh, this was something we wrote a policy analysis about in 2013. We were the first group to write an analysis about this, how to do it, why it's popular, what the benefits are, and we identified every statute that would need to change to make it so, basically to make it so that every non-citizen 
would not have access to means-tested welfare benefits. Um, this paper has been taken by Representative Grothman, a Republican from Wisconsin. Uh, he's written it into a draft bill that's still going through the process of revision. We're working with him about this. He plans on introducing this in the near future based on this Cato idea. I believe uh, Cato's immigration scholars, I, I believe, uh, are producing some of the most widely read and original research on the topic of immigration in the United States. Uh, immigration reform needs new ideas, and I believe Cato is supplying them. We've had some success recently on the Hill with an idea being introduced based entirely on our work uh, over uh, three and a half years about from conception to introduction. Uh, the state-based visa bill this week and a welfare bill, uh, reform bill coming soon. I believe that Cato can be innovative and productive because we're not tied to political party. We're not tied to the whims or the fortunes of the political process. We're tied to an idea, and I believe an idea that has broad appeal across the spectrum in some ways, maybe more to one party than the other. Uh, but we can be independent, and we can work with both sides on this. And this is a tremendous strength uh, that we have. Uh, and this is just a copy of the bill that Ron Johnson signed when he introduced it um, this Wednesday. Um, so thank you very much.